We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready, joined as always here in the Clark Ford Studios by Josh Hendrickson, Chair of Economics at Ole Miss. It is uh, Wednesday, February the 28th, late afternoon as we tape this, so a lot going on. If you hear this on a, um, a couple of days from now and stuff has happened, it's we just didn't have our crystal ball out today. Um like I said, Clark Ford Studios, Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. You know the spiel by now. Call Corey Clark. Tell him what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. Right to the bottom line. No hassle, no haggle. The rest is up to you. Clark Ford, 662-257-1900. Josh, uh, good to see you again. How are you? It's good to see you. All right. We got a lot to get to, so um, we could we could talk Cody Bellinger and those things, but I, I'm not really in the mood. Honestly, I... I I watched some of the Cody Bellinger press conference. I was happy for him because he looked happy, but it doesn't change anything about how I feel about I'm mad about stuff. You and I have been texting back and forth a lot, but it really picked up on Friday when the news came out. I got up on Friday morning. Alara said, did you hear about the girl in Georgia? And I said, no. And she told me about it, and I really haven't stopped thinking about it since then. Lake and Riley, a 22-year-old Nursing student there in uh, Athens, Georgia, by all accounts, just a fantastic young woman on the dean's list, all of those things, all of the things that you would expect. She was a a recreational runner, not a solo athlete, as the AP said, but a recreational runner who um, enjoyed her friends, and uh, she liked to fix a cocktail and those kinds of things with her friends, and they liked to cook together, and it. I told, I told you, it, it's... Sounds like my daughter when she was finishing up her senior year at, at Arkansas. It was the stuff that they liked to do with her friends. And there's been videos that have come out that remind me so much of the videos that I would see of Campbell and her friends at, at, at Arkansas when they were goofing around on a Thursday night or a Friday night or a Saturday night, just being college kids, being young people, which is what they should do. And she goes to a, a track, basically, uh, outdoor area at the University of Georgia, and she is uh, brutally murdered. And frankly, um, it pissed me off. And then you learned quite quickly from cer- certain news outlets, other news outlets, as you know, didn't really want to dive into this, but the person who murdered her, I guess we'll still go allegedly, he's not been convicted in a court of law, but it, 
be shocked if he's if it's a frame. Uh, is is an illegal immigrant from Venezuela who shouldn't be here, and on multiple occasions in, interacted with American authorities who should have deported him. And Lake and Raleigh would not be the subject of our conversation today. She would just be. It'd be late afternoon on a Wednesday. She'd probably be finishing up uh, another day of of nursing school. Probably heading back to the house, unwind a little bit, do some homework, and get ready for another day. Right? That's that's and that's what it should be. Maybe starting to think about the weekend ahead. Maybe maybe there's a party that they're going to do. Maybe there's a, a a recipe they're going to try. Maybe there's a a, a music festival somewhere maybe they're already starting to kind of think about spring break she should be talking about those things today not um her family having to put her to rest later this week well this is an instance of what i mean when i say that like we're we're not a serious country when you know when you're thinking about all of the people who are just coming in across the border like sort of unchecked uh, like this is one of the things that you're concerned about, right? So some of these people might be coming here looking for better opportunities. Some of these people might be the greatest people in the world who, you know, just need that opportunity at the American dream or something like that. But there are also people like this and it's getting to the point where you're starting to see stories like this, um, you know, almost every day. And you have all of these people who who counter this and say, well, actually, if you look at it, you know, um, immigrants and illegal immigrants commit crimes at lower rates than than uh, other people. But that's not the point. The point is, is that this is preventable if you are identifying people when they're trying to come in or if you're not just letting anybody just walk in, um, you know, just because they want to. Right. Like there is a border. And the border should be enforced and you should have some sort of mechanism here to identify who's, who is coming and going. And the idea that, um, you know, the, the idea that, that, you know, this isn't something that we should worry about is sort of ridiculous, right? Like this is, this is the primary thing that you're concerned about is that because there are so many people coming in, because they're, um, uh, they're not being vetted because they're not going through any sort of like immigration process or whatever. You have no idea who's coming in. So like the people who are coming in could be criminals. They could be terrorists. And well, so along those lines, let me read yeah. something to you. This is not interrupting you, but it's feeding your point. I had, I wrote about uh, Lake and Riley and journalism and all of those things on Sunday in 10 weekend thoughts. I, I went into a pretty passionate uh, conversation about it on Monday's Oxford Exxon podcast at the end. And of course I've gotten some feedback, including from people who work on the border. Uh, the MPW digital reach is more than sometimes I give it credit for. And there are people on the border. One person sends me something. He says, I can't say this publicly because if the wrong person saw it, I could get in trouble. It's pretty easy to find out who I am in my roughly 300 miles of border. Roughly 15,000 migrants cross the border weekly. The Army points them out to Border Patrol, who apprehends them. They process them, give them a court date for an asylum or other hearing, and cut them loose. We basically are just counting people crossing the border who we catch and release. We've also seen, we're also seeing an increased number of migrants who are military-aged males traveling without families, 
who have countries of origin who are hostile to the U.S. Moreover, this mission takes my soldiers away from their careers and their families to, in my opinion, accomplish close to nothing while costing the U.S. taxpayer roughly $500 million per year. This is a federal mission, meaning it was directed by the president or someone in the executive branch. Our battalion is the first line of defense for a hurricane on the Mississippi coast. This takes us away from the state mission. If we get a major storm while we're gone, we won't be there to respond. And then I said, hey, man, you know, stay safe or whatever. And I won't say the name of the town, but he says, just driving around this town near the border in the Lincoln Navigator, your tax dollars rented for me. It carry on. I was adding that just to point to, to your point that we're not getting we're not getting the future scientist of America coming over from Venezuela and 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 Honduras and such. We're getting their criminals. Well, I think the thing is is that people aren't willing to have a, an actual conversation about this. So everything is treated as though like um, this is all about the humanity of people and it's about like uh, American opportunity and America being a welcoming place, America being a melting pot, all you know, all of these kinds of things that we're that we're always told. But the but the point here is is like that those are those are like emotional arguments and there's and, and you know, there's reasons to think about those arguments and consider those arguments, but we're not having a serious conversation. If we're having a serious conversation, it's like, okay, if you want to allow more people in here, why, why do you just, you know, just let anyone in? Like, why, why is it so that, um, like, why aren't you making it easier for people who are like actually like applying to become citizens to become citizens? Why aren't you making it easier for people to come here on like work visas and things like that. Like if that's, if, if you really are about opportunity, why are, why aren't you doing that? Mm -hmm. If you're just allowing people to cross the border, that's not that, you know, that that's not at all the same thing. And yes, some of those people, maybe even, uh, the vast majority of those people are coming for the opportunity provided by the United States, right? The economic opportunities that you can't get anywhere else. But the issue is, is it's not, is that you have to think about the potential here. So like one of the potential outcomes is something like this. So you have people who come in who are criminals and who get here and commit crimes. If those people were vetted, many of them would be prevented from crossing the border in the first place. Even in the case of, um, you know, even in this particular case, the guy was arrested twice before this happened and neither time was he deported or, you know, suffered any consequence he was essentially released and so released the on the border and then again in, in new york yeah. city when he was driving around in a motorized vehicle with a five-year-old without a helmet on his back seat which is obviously against the law you you and, and endangering the the life of a minor well and also as bad as this as bad as this this particular instance is like i mean we can imagine worse right like we don't know um who some of the people are who are coming, right? Like uh, people who are coming from hostile countries might be coming to escape those countries, but they might also be coming uh, to perpetrate future attacks on the United States. And yeah. so you should actually take that into account when you're when you're determining your policy. And I think that these kinds of arguments just get completely ignored. And one of the reasons they get completely ignored is because it makes you sound like a terrible person, right? Like, oh, look at all these people. They're just coming here for opportunity. And like, you just want to call them all criminals. No, no, no. The point is not whether 
they're all criminals. The point is not whether, about what percentage of them are criminals. The, the point is, is that if you have absolutely no proce- process of identifying who is a potential criminal, who is a potential terrorist, the, these kinds of things, like then um, you're, you're basically just welcoming people like that to come. And once they recognize and, and once people like that recognize that they have that opportunity, they're more likely to come. Right. So even if the probability was low, you're increasing the probability that somebody like that comes because they know that you're not going through any sort of vetting process. So let's talk about the reporting of this a little bit because you're 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 pretty good at this and I, I get so angry and emotional about it that I don't know that I'm rational. The Associated Press tweeted out the killing of a nursing student out for a run highlights the fears of a solo female athletes. Solo female athletes out for a run. I mean, this is the Associated Press. I mean, a once venerable institution of, of journalism. They just won't go there. Today, the, the mayor of Athens, the mayor of Athens, Georgia, said, there's no link. There's just no link, man. I mean, we must respect the dignity of migrants, he said. We got to respect their dignity. He wouldn't say Lakin Riley's name. A senator from, I can't remember what state, it doesn't really matter, a Democratic senator, talking about Lake and Riley's murder, said, you know, her heart's heavy. It's very unfortunate, of course, but we can't change policy based on one instance. To which I was like, whoa, whoa, hold up. Whoa, whoa. Because I, you changed the world on one instance four years ago. What, what do you mean? And so it made me ask you, like, I know they all hate us. My question was, but why do they hate us? I think that you have to try, you have to, try to understand what the, the sort of ideology of our ruling class is. Um, so I've brought this up before, um, but there was a social scientist by the name of Rene Girard. Yes. And Rene Girard, um, wrote a lot. He, he did all these like sort of anthropological studies of Christianity, right? So, um, what are the sort of, uh, anthropological lessons that we can get from studying Christianity? And one of his main things is that like anthropologists get Christianity wrong. And his point in why it gets it wrong is that if you actually study ancient myths, it's very easy to think that like what's in the Bible is just replicating these other ancient myths. Because in the in these ancient myths, essentially what would happen is like there's some giant sort of like scandal uh, going on in society and this scandal is going on in society. And so everybody starts kind of like, um, you know, uh, warring with each other, battling with each other, fighting with each other, um, over everything. And that what happens is, is that in these myths, the way that this gets resolved is they, they essentially, um, end up blaming things on this one person, and then they kind of cast that person out. So either they like expel them from society or like, or, you know, they put them to death or something like that. And that's, and that's like the basis of all of these um, like ancient myths. And what Gerard pointed out is like people argue that Christianity is the same kind of thing. And 
you know, to these people, right? Because they see it and they're like, okay, well, yeah. Like if you think about like the death of Jesus, like it, it resembles some of these ancient myths, right? It resembles the ancient myths because you've got this scandal going on in society. They find, um, you know, then they sort of, uh, you know, they blame Jesus for this. They put Jesus to death, right? And that's supposed to resolve the, the kind of conflict. And what Gerard points out is like all of these anthropologists who study this, like they approach it because they don't think that there's anything valuable in Christianity. So they just, they want to treat it as just another myth. And his, his fundamental point though, was that if you actually have like this, if you actually do a careful reading of the Bible, what you realize is that the Bible goes out of its way to point out that like Jesus is this innocent victim, right? That Jesus did nothing wrong, that Jesus was without sin and that there is no reason that anybody should, that, that he should have been put to death. Right. And, but not only that, there's a bigger point. The bigger point is, is that in all of these other ancient myths, like these were all just scapegoats. Like there was no, like the people who were killed or expelled or whatever, they were always just scapegoats. And so what Christianity reveals is it simultaneously reveals, um, you know, how these previous myths were kind of invalid and, um, and that, and that, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you, you shouldn't believe them and you shouldn't, uh, you know, base your religious beliefs around them or something. And so, and, you know, he makes a really compelling argument that this is one reason why Christianity kind of takes over the Western world, because when people hear the gospel, like, yes, like religious, you know, there, there might be some religious aspect where, you know, they, um, you know, that, that they, they believe this in a religious sense, but his point is, is that it's bigger than that. It's not just a, a religious sense. Like it differs because in an anthropological sense, it not only is providing them with a, like with this, uh, religious story, but it's providing them with evidence that their, their previous, um, mythology is just wrong and based on a lie. And so I, I say all that because what Gerard points out is he says, look, in a Christian world, the the rivals to Christianity can only come in two forms. One is like a rejection of Christianity and a, and a sort of attempt to return to paganism. And he essentially compares like the Nazis to this kind of idea that like, because they had all of these, uh, they, they had all these sort of like pagan symbols and, and, you know, they were all into like weird mythology and stuff like that. And, and so he compares that to it and he says, you know, that's one way is like you, you can destroy um, Christianity by like replacing it with like the old stuff. But his point was, is that another way that, um, that there could be a sort of challenge to like, a, you know, Christianity and sort of like the domination of Christianity, like throughout like our culture and our morals and all, all these kinds of things would actually be to flank Christianity from the other side. So to take that idea of the victim and actually just push it all the way to the limit and say, because like Gerard points out that like, you know, this belief in sort of like the victim and, and things like that brought many good things to society. Like it started to, you know, like these kinds of cultural beliefs push towards like things like property rights and rule of law and equality before the law and all of these kinds of uh, all these kinds of things because that comes out of the concern for the victim but what he says is that the you know one of the alternatives that could spring up is this alternative where 
instead of kind of trying to replace Christianity with the old ways, you actually just take it all the way up. You dial it all the way up to 10 and you say, no, like Christianity doesn't go far enough. You're not, you're not concerned enough with the victims. You're not concerned enough with, with victims. And so we constantly have to apologize for everything. We have to apologize for everything because there's always victims out there. There are always people that, um, that are suffering. There are always people who are not getting the benefits. There are always people, um, who are suffering in some way. And no matter how much improvement that we make, there's always suffering. And so if you're not taking into account that suffering, if you're not considering those victims, then like, you're not, you're not a good person. And this seems to explain a lot. It seems to explain a lot because this seems to be actually what's going on in, in the world is that it seems like they're embracing this kind of ideology where they're just sort of elevating victimhood to an extreme level such that this is how they're, they interpret their entire worldview. And so, you know, like we talk about these stories all the time where you say like, well, why won't they mention um, like, uh, you know, like why won't they like, like we talked about this when we talked about the Nashville shooter, right? Yep. Like why wouldn't they mention that the person is, was trans? Because if you, if this is how you interpret the world, if you, if, if you have this sort of victim hierarchy, right? You don't want to report that because you see that person as a victim of society. And so you don't want to call attention to those characteristics because you're afraid that it will harm other people like that who are victims of society. Right. And so even in this case, there's a we the weird way in which this is reported is like, so this started in academia, right? This started in academia. So you can see this like sort of victimhood culture in this idea that exists in academia called intersectionality, right? So intersectionality is sort of like, okay, think about gender. Okay. If you're a man or a woman, um, I'm already kind of confused. Well, you, but the basic idea is, is with intersectionality is what matters is all these different immutable characteristics. So if, if I compare a man to a woman, women in society are more oppressed than men, right? They're treated less fairly than men. Yeah. Okay, if you start comparing races, there are certain races that are treated better than others, right? There are sort of certain races who have been historically treated worse than others. If you start thinking about different um, forms of sexuality, right? Heterosexuals are treated as as um, uh, differently than homosexuals, right? And so the idea is is that this intersectionality thing is basically it's it's characterizing like your level of victimhood by how many of these boxes that you check, right? So um, if you are a uh, female black lesbian or something like that, you're way up on the list, right? Like, so you're above just regular black woman. You're above regular black male. Well, I mean, so far you just described Brittany Griner. In, in, in this situation, we, we, we literally gave away killers so that she could come home. Yeah, and so if you if you think about it this way, like this this idea of intersectionality, it's sort of divine defining like this hierarchy of victimhood, right? It's this yes. hierarchy of like how oppressed you are relative to to other groups. So the more of those boxes that you check, the more of a victim you are. Correct. And the more of a victim you are, the more that we must bow to you. Correct. And so in this instance, with this with this poor girl who got killed. The thing is, is like she's a woman. So, she, does, some, so it, she checks one box. She's a woman. She's a woman and she got raped and she got murdered. So she is a victim. The problem is, is that under this sort of interpretation, she's not as she her 
her inherent victimhood is lower than his inherent victimhood because um, he is a different. You know, she's he, white. Yeah, she's she's, he, she's she was white. heterosexual. He's, yes, she he's, comes from yeah. a she comes from a nuclear family. She's religious. She was a Christian. Yeah, and so he's Hispanic. He's came from Venezuela. So Venezuela is a disaster. Most people there are are living in in terrible poverty. He was under their, underprivileged. Yeah. And yeah. so and so the idea is is like even in presenting this when they present the story they're presenting her as like the, the story that they wrote is like they're presenting her as a victim right that like this is a thing that women have to deal with that like men don't have to worry about yeah, right so let's, like let's let's focus on the her being a runner outrunning by herself presumably a white man outrunning by himself would not have been the target of this 5 foot 7 loser from Venezuela because uh, a white man would have, because I think what, I mean, I think it's becoming obvious what happened is I don't even know what, that the guy was intending to murder her. He was intending to rape her and she fought back courageously and he had some sort of weapon. They've not revealed what it was, but something strong enough to shatter her skull and she died a brutal death. So I kind of go back to the other though, right? Because I keep looking at this and I think, Okay, well, sometimes in, in society, something happens that is a watershed moment, a sea change. Um, obviously, I was referencing George Floyd earlier. That was a, a sea change. It was a watershed moment. It, it led to revolution in many ways, whether it should or shouldn't or what the real cause of his death or not was. Those are all things that people can debate and have debated. There's documentaries that are out about it. You can make up your own mind. But what's undebatable is that this 22-year-old girl that we, so many of us, can completely relate to. We live in a college town, for God's sake. You, 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 drove, you drive onto, a, onto and off of a campus every day where there's, what, I don't know, eight, ten thousand 10,000 people that remind you a lot of Lake and Riley? Is that fair? I mean, there's a sorority row over there. I can pass by the Kappa house and the KD house and the DG house and the Five Mu House and the Kyo House and Tridelt House and they've got hundreds of Lake and Rileys in, in inside their their walls. It's easy to relate to that happening on the Ole Miss campus. The the Whirlpool Trails. The girls go out and run on the Whirlpool Trails. The the Lamar Park. Um, I don't know on campus. Tad, Tad Smith. Wherever young people go exercise outside in Oxford. So if you know it. it you, you get my point. Why is this, and maybe it is, maybe I mean, I've seen more, I've gotten more feedback about this. Why is this not leading to a, all right, that's enough. I mean, there's another story today. Uh, 14-year-old girl in Louisiana. 14-year-old girl, Josh, in Louisiana, raped at gunpoint by an illegal alien from Honduras. These stories, they're daily. They're daily. Why Why is this not leading to a bit of a revolution in our country? And maybe it is. We have an election coming up. Why is it not leading to more of a, you know what, this is enough. We've, we've let way too many in. It's time to round them up. It's time to do something about the border. It's time to get serious about this. We need to stop spending all of this, sending all these resources to Ukraine and elsewhere. And we need to, we need to focus on ourselves here for a bit and lock this thing down. This is a problem. If this can happen to this poor young lady, this could happen to my daughter. This could happen to my sister. This could happen to to um you know, my cousin, my friend, my sorority sister, my classmate. Fill in the blank. It, it could eat cuz if it could happen to her, it could easily happen. 
in 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 Oxford or Starkville or Baton Rouge or Fayetteville or Auburn or fill in the blank could easily happen in those places where most of us who live in this part of the country we know people we either know we people either knew Lakin or more likely knew lots of girls who are just like Lakin. Well, but I think this I think the reason why it's hard to see the well, first of all, I think that the the evidence that we'll see, I think, is gonna tend to show up in elections more so than in um other types of actions. Okay. But I think the other thing is, is it gets back to this point about like, I mean, the way that they frame this is like, oh, this is just a problem that girls face. Right. And so they try to frame it as um like an like this is a this is an issue for all girls. Well, they do that and and they just ignore the perpetrator, right? They refer to the perpetrator as Athens man. Yes. Right. And, um, and so I'm not sure that if people who aren't, you know, paying attention actually know as much about this stuff because it's not getting the media attention that it gets, uh, that, that other things get right. And it's not getting it because it doesn't, because it doesn't fit the right profile here because on the one hand they want to cover the fact that, Hey, if you're a young girl, like you shouldn't have to worry that something like this is going to happen to you. And so you see this, like they're putting that out there, but then they're, but then they're acting like this is just like a random thing that all girls face and that this isn't like a policy choice, that this isn't something that like we yes. could, we, we could stop. And, um, and, and they, and they go out of their way not to talk about the perpetrator and they don't talk about perpetrators specifically. Literally when, good morning. Yes. America did exactly what you're saying right now. Yeah. And they do, and they do this because they don't want to call attention to the characteristics of the perpetrator because they see the perpetrator themselves as a victim. It's the same thing with the Nashville shooter. It's the same thing with with uh, this alleged killer that they don't want to draw attention to those characteristics because they think that those those characteristics are inherently associated with victimhood, and they and because people are biased and because people um, uh, might react poorly, right? And so they they. They're always trying to maintain the narrative. They're always trying to, they don't want people to have ammunition for the things that they, um, you know, to, to, to fight against the things that they themselves are for, right? And so they don't want this to draw attention to the border. So they're just not going to talk about the guy, like the, the perpetrator at all. They're just going to talk about, well, um, you know, this is just, you know, this is just the life of a woman, you know, it's dangerous, is the border wide open in your opinion because the Democrats see it as a way to uh, start lining up a, millions of future voters who will vote Democrat? Or is the border open, and I have a friend who suggests this to me, because the the progressive wing of the uh, the Democratic Party and the mainstream media side of the party thought Donald Trump made the border wall case in such a purposefully offensive way that they thought taking the other side of it of the issue would be good politics. And now they're, they're, they're dug in as obviously we're, you know, Donald Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee. So anytime we think, we think about these things, I think so in economics, we have this theory of uh, regulation uh, called like the bootleggers and the Baptists. And the idea is, is that like all political policies are coalitions, right? So if you're trying to, for example, get prohibition passed, um, you might have a lot of support from Baptists who think that like maybe you shouldn't be drinking, but you also might get a lot of support from bootleggers who are like, yeah, 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 the Baptists are right. You shouldn't be allowed to drink, you know, because they intend to 
offer a black market in uh, alcohol, right? And so you have this coalition of people who are sort of like true believers and then people who are just acting in their self-interest. And I think that what's going on here is a, is is the epitome of that. So on the one hand, I think that that's right. I think there are some people who think that this is an opportunity for them because the way that Trump talked about the border was considered to be very offensive. And, um, and you know, he was, um, you know, he was often accused of like, saying that like all of the people coming were, were not good people and things like that. And, and so, um, and so politically that creates an opportunity because you can appear as like the more compassionate person. You can appear as though like you're doing the compassionate thing and that you're, you're helping these people. But I also think there's, there's an ideology here. And, and the ideology is, is that there are a lot of people on the left. There are a lot of libertarians who are very, very wedded to this idea of open borders because they think that like, um, they they think that this is desirable because there are people and, and the, and, and you can understand a little bit the case, right? Like the case that they make is like, people can't help where they're born. And so some people are born in really oppressive places and people are born to like, you know, dictators and poverty and things like that. And that if those people want to come to a place that offers more opportunity, we should let them come. And one of the things that drives a lot of this ideology is that people focus on the economics of immigration. And if you focus on the economics of immigration, like one of the things that people tend to point out is like, well, you know, um, if you've got more immigrants coming in, then the labor supply goes up and that's going to tend to push wages down and that, that makes workers worse off. But like a lot of the economic literature uh, shows that like, well, yeah, when immigrants come, like they're increasing the labor supply, but they're also cr- increasing the demand for like uh, goods and services. And so there's a supply effect and a demand effect. And those two things are going to tend to offset one another, right? So the, yeah, the supply effect is pulling down wages, but the fact that they're, they have their own demand for goods and services means that that's increasing labor demand. And so on net, you know, the effect on wages probably isn't that significant. And so this, th- these people are emboldened by this by saying like, look, there's really no cost to this, right? Like they're, you know, the effect on wages is negligible and, um, and you know, the, the people who complain about that is, are, you know, it, everything is overblown. And so I think that they're real true believers in this, but I think what the thing that they don't understand is like the, the prevailing ideology of our ruling class, um, we're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. It's, it's motivated by this belief that like, I think a significant part of our ruling class after the collapse of the Cold War viewed that as vindication of the way that the U.S. does things. And so what they treated this as is they treated this as, okay, um, Western ideas, Western institutions, um, these are the kinds of things that lead to modernization and prosperity. And so if anybody wants modernization and prosperity, they're going to have to Westernize. They're going to have to be more like us. And if they won't be more like us, then we should just let the people who want to be more like us come here, right? And that's kind of the ideology. Now, first of all, that's very different than just opening up the border and letting anyone come, right? But but the second thing is, is that what they seem to not understand is like they don't actually seem to understand like how the world works. And you see this, right? Like we talked about this when we talked about the people who are standing there, like uh, the the queers for Palestine people, right? Yes. Like it's very clear that these people don't really understand how the world works, right? Like they sure don't understand how Palestine works. <laughs> and, I'll tell you that. And, and so, <laughs> and and so I think that, but I think that this is generally true. Is like the the issue that you're dealing with with immigration is not so much about the economics of immigration. It's actually much more about like the cultural impacts of of immigration. So. People who share common values um, are not going to have a hard time sort of like living together. But, you know, like in the West, these Western ideals, these, you know, um, these Western ideals of like the rule of law, equality before the law, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, free markets like the, you know, property rights, all of these kinds of things that, you know, we elevate and um, and think about like checks and balances in the government and, you know, all, all these kinds of things, all these ideas that we elevate, we just take for granted that like everybody else in the world thinks that like agrees with us, that these are all good things and that this is how we should govern society. And what they don't seem to understand is like there are a lot of places throughout the world that don't like our institutions, that don't like the way that we operate and would like to do things differently. And not only that, like some of these people see the opportunity to come to you know, Western Europe or the United States or, or, or Canada or, or places like that and basically be able to reap the rewards of economic opportunity, but, tra- but then change, um, but, but then change the institutions more towards their liking. Right. And so the, the point is, is that there is, when, when you have massive immigration, there is inherently like this clash of cultures and, in the United States, we're extremely biased, like because we have the reputation of like the melting pot. We have the reputation of like everybody comes here for opportunity. They assimilate and like they just become Americans and like we're really good at this. 
And the thing is, though, is that um, there's a question about whether we are indeed good at this. And, th- and there's also a question of like whether or not there are limits to that. And what I mean is that if you look at what's going on in Western Europe, they essentially had much bigger waves of mass migration in the last two decades. And if you look at a lot of these countries, like the main issue that they're fighting over is immigration. And the main issue they're fighting over about immigration is that you had a lot of mass migration, but the people who migrated are not assimilating and not only are not assimilating, but like want to change uh, laws and institutions to be more similar to their own cultural preferences. And the people who are already there are kind of like, whoa, whoa, this wasn't the deal. Like, you know, we were allowing you to come here to escape poverty and tyranny. And now you're trying to like change everything uh, uh, about this place. And like, and so the, 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 the point is, is that a lot of the people in Western Europe feel like the reason that they have economic opportunity, the reason that they've become wealthier is because they've adopted all of these Western institutions. And then they've welcomed in all of these uh, migrants thinking that that was going, that, that what they were doing is just providing them with opportunity. Like we're, you know, like your country is not going to adopt these institutions. So you're not going to experience this opportunity or this wealth come here and we'll give you this opportunity And a lot of people came there for the economic opportunity, but are not interested in the institutions like they don't like the institutions or they or they want to change them or there are elements to them that they don't like or, you know, um, and and this is driven by different sort of cultural beliefs. And the idea that we can just ignore all of these cultural factors is something that permeates the sort of ruling class, not only in the United States, but in Europe, like the ruling class is predominantly just ignores this stuff and is just kind of like, no, like everything will work out like our institutions are um, are robust and, you know, they'll we'll maintain those institutions and and these people will eventually assimilate. And look, that could be correct. But the evidence so far, especially in Europe, is that that's not the case, that there are a lot there's a lot of these cultural differences that are creating divides uh, in those countries and creating conflict and, you know, leading to political outcomes that our ruling class really doesn't like. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, get to some, we mentioned Trump briefly. Trump's been in the news every hour, basically for the last eight years. Uh, he's in the news again today, a New York appeals judge on Wednesday, which is today as we take this declined to suspend enforcement of a $355 million judgment against Donald Trump that the former president says could force him to sell parts of his real estate empire. Judge Anil C. Singh of an intermediate New York appeals court gave Trump some wiggle room in meeting the burden of covering the judgment, granting some portions of his request. In a one-page order following a hearing, he suspended uh, bars on lending and allowed Trump's two eldest sons to continue running the Trump organization. Trump's legal team had sought a temporary reprieve of paying the judgment at a hearing earlier Wednesday. If the judgment wasn't halted, it could wipe out a chunk of his wealth and hamper his company's real estate operations for years to come, as lawyers said in a filing ahead of the hearing. Trump, a billionaire famous, I'm reading for the Wall Street Journal, by the way, a billionaire famously boastful about the size of his wealth, lacks the liquidity to cover the judgment, the lawyer said, and without judicial intervention, might have to unload his prized real estate in a fire sale. Um, all of this comes on the heels of Trump being ordered to pay $355 million in allegedly ill-gotten profits plus roughly a further $100 million in interest. Um, 
Eric and Donald Trump Jr. were banned from running the, the Trump Organization for two years. It restricted the company's ability to obtain loans and subjected the company to extend financial oversight. Um, unless put on pause or overturned, the judge could cost Trump more than $100,000 a day in added interest until he either pays or posts a bond guaranteeing full payment. This should make people's blood boil, even if they hate Donald Trump. Like, it should absolutely make your blood boil. So, you have this case where they have basically accused him of defrauding people. Not the state, but defrauding private companies, banks. Yeah. Um, And they've accused him of defrauding these banks um, by misrepresenting the value of his property. Correct. Now, you could understand this if, for example, he had, um, you know, he had he had given some wild valuation. They just took his word for it. They gave him a loan, and then he couldn't pay it back. You could understand them coming after him and saying, "This is, you know, this is fraud. Like you you just lied about this, and and they and they sort of took your word for it." In the real world, you can say anything that you want about the value of your property. Right. Like I can leave here right now. I can drive to the nearest bank and I can say, hey, you should give me uh, a home equity loan. Uh, I think that my house is worth ten million dollars and all I want is a home equity loan for nine million. That's all that I want. Right. The bank is not just going to go. Yeah, OK. That's, that seems fine. No, right. no, no. Of course not. The bank is going to do due diligence, right? So they're going to go look at my house. They're going to they're going to measure it, right? They're going to send an appraiser out. He's going to measure everything. He's going to look at the size of the house. He's going to compare it to the other houses on the street. He's going to compare it to the sales of, of other houses, right? They're going to do all this due diligence to figure out how much is this house really worth, right? They're not just going to give me the loan. They're going to do this due diligence, and then they're going to come back to me with a realistic number, and then they're going to say, okay, you know, like, we will do that, but here is what we're willing to lend to you based on what we've discovered from our own, uh, from, uh, you know, from our own due diligence. And so the same thing happened here. None of these banks were defrauded. They did their due diligence on these things. They all made money. They all got yes. their money back and made money. Yes, he he repaid all of the loans. So if he repaid all of the loans, that means that they made a profit. Okay. They they got the outcome that they wanted. He repaid all of his loans, right? So literally, if you say who was the victim of this quote crime, end quote, you can't name one. No, there is no victim. Um the some of these uh some of these banks even said that, you know, like uh they would, you know, they would gladly lend to him again. Okay. So the question is, who, who's been defrauded here? But Was it the, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin, I can't think of his name, the Mr. Wonderful on, on yeah, the Shark yeah, Tank, yeah. he said that if every, literally every commercial real estate developer does what Trump did. Well, and this is the, well, and this is the big thing, is that everybody does this, um, especially when you have, because see, the, the thing about my house, for example, is that there are other comparable houses in Oxford that you could compare it to, and you could determine the valuation. The difficulty is, is that like some of Trump's properties might not have like a comp, right? They might not have like a comparable, um, uh, you know, uh, like so th- there might not be something that they could easily compare this to to determine like what the what the market value really is, right? Like, and but the thing is, is that doesn't stop them from doing due diligence. They're still going to figure out ways to figure out 
um, you know, exactly what this stuff is worth. And so the issue is that um, he basically has done nothing wrong in this case. He's basically told, like, he's basically been accused of saying that his property was worth too much. It's unclear what too much even means, right? When you say that he has, that, that he defrauded them, you have to have clear evidence that, like, what he was given is completely ridiculous, uh, like, on its face, right? That, like, he completely, he misrepresented this so much that it should have been obvious. But also that if, if that was the case, th- there would need to be a victim, Right. There would need to be somebody who suffered as a result of the fraud. No one here suffered. And so the big deal here is, though, is that and this is why people should be upset. So they've made this three hundred and fifty five million dollar judgment against him and they've made this judgment. And in response to this, there are a number of business owners in New York who express their concerns about the case. Even people who don't like Donald Trump in New York were talking about this sets a terrible precedent. Because how do I know that you're not going to come after me? Right. Right. And so if I say the wrong things or if I or, or if um, I end up on the bad side of the attorney general or the governor or the mayor or whoever, is this going to happen to me? Like, are you just going to claim that this is what I did? And this is the most remarkable thing. The governor of New York came out and in response to those concerns, basically said, listen, guys, you guys don't have to worry about that at all. We're not going to do that to you. <laughs> so the very clear thing here is, is like they're just targeting one specific person with this legal action. But the problem is, is that by targeting one specific person, you can say, oh, we're not going to do this to you. But they have to believe that that's true. They have to believe that if you run afoul of these same people, that they're not going to turn around and do it to you, right? Their word means nothing. They just went after somebody for, you know, supposedly overvaluing his property and, you know, nobody involved thought that that was the case. They all did their due diligence. They all gave him the loans. They all got back their money. But the point is, is that this is extremely important because one of the central tenets of Western civilization is the rule of law, right? That there is a law and everybody is accountable to the law. And everybody gets equal treatment um, under the law. This this is a huge thing in Western societies, right? This is this is a major institutional it's, innovation. It's one of the core tenets of our civilization, right? And so, what New York is doing is basically saying, no, 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 we're going to have a rule by law. We're not going to have the rule of law. We're going to have the rule by law. That means there are going to be laws, but we're going to enforce them differently depending on who you are. And whether we like you or not, and whether we think that we should punish you. And that should frighten people. That should really frighten people. I don't care if you think that Donald Trump is the worst person in in the entire world. That should really frighten you because what that says is that um, anybody here is at risk. But not only is anybody at risk, the the bigger issue here is, is that there's a reason why the rule of law is important. The rule of law is important because it it essentially says that the law itself is neutral with respect to who you are. And this is one of the fundamental tenets of, of our society is that knowing that you are going to be treated equally no matter who you are under the law is important. It's important for a lot of decisions, right? If you're a business owner, you want to know this because 
this is going to affect your incentive to invest in your business, to expand your business, to um, to make improvements to your property, right? All of these things in the background, something like the rule of law and your property rights and all these kinds of things, like those things are sort of in the background as things that we kind of take for granted when we think about all these kinds of decisions. We take for granted that we have property rights. We take for granted that we, you know, we live under a system where, you know, there's uh, equality under the law. We take for granted these things when we're making these decisions. But something like this reveals to you that like, well, hold on a second. Do we? Should we take those things for granted? Should we take these things into account when we make decisions? Because if we're just going to uh, punish people arbitrarily for things, then anybody can be published arbitrarily. And if anybody can be published, uh, you know, punished uh, arbitrarily, then maybe, um, you know, I don't want to invest in my business. Maybe I don't want to improve this property. Maybe sure. I don't want to hire more people. Maybe I don't sure. want to try to get that loan that would allow me to expand. Well, and I mean, in this case, if you are someone who leans a certain political way, you don't really want to do business in New York, do you? No, absolutely not. I mean, they've demonstrated that this is they've, – they've essentially demonstrated that this is that, – that this had one stated purpose and that was to go after Donald Trump. Right, that this is this is their stated purpose. I mean, the governor came out and said, "Oh, none of you have to worry about this. This isn't like so." Basically, what she was saying is like, "Well, this doesn't this this doesn't apply to everyone. It just applies to this one specific person." And that you know is supposed to give comfort to these business owners, but I think it actually should give them a lot of pause about. Well, wait a second. Yeah, it, it's it's look. I have problems with the other case, and 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 for the record, you're a lot more of a Trump guy than I am a Trump guy. I was a DeSantis guy. I'd love for DeSantis to win the nomination. I was for DeSantis. I'm, I'm, I'm. If you give me the choice of voting DeSantis or Trump, I'm voting DeSantis 100 times out of 100. That's not. So the point is, I'm not one of these Trump apologists. But I'm looking at this, and I look at the other case in New York involving the, the d- defamation case, which is just mind-boggling to me. Uh, that, that, a th- what was it? 300, another 350 million dollars or something. On, okay, he said he didn't rape you. There's no proof that he raped you. It's a civil case. He says he didn't rape you. And then not only did he rape you, but if you were to rape somebody, you would be the last person that he'd rape, that he doesn't find you attractive. You call that defamation and you win. I mean, I'm essentially getting this correct, right? You, he can't, he can't continue to deny that he did it and continue to say that you're insane for accusing him of that. And every time he does it, you say, we're going to go, E. Jean, whatever her name is, we're, we're going to go back to court and sue you again for defamation and come up with these unjustifiable numbers for, for punitive damages. It's, it's insane. It becomes obvious to anyone, whether you like or detest Donald Trump, that this is a political witch hunt. Well, I think that, I mean, it's clearly the case that this is ridiculous. So, I mean, he's accused of raping this woman. He denies that he's... Uh, accused of raping her he denies it publicly and you know he desi- he and he denies it in a sort of trumpian way but then he gets sued for defamation um for essentially denying that he did something that he may not have done and that there's no evidence that he did i mean like there were certain things in the case where like there were many many facts that like um like she couldn't even recall about what was what was going on, right? And so like there's actually uncertainty about whether this even occurred. And so like essentially you have someone who is being charged with defamation for denying something that they very possibly didn't do. 
And that's bizarre. And it's bizarre for a couple of reasons. It's bizarre because like uh, our libel and defamation laws have very, very high hurdles in this country. It's very hard to get judgments against people for libel. Uh, It's very hard to get judgments of people against people for defamation. Like you really have to um, you really have to clear a high bar. Yes. Very high. And in this case, it, it didn't clear a high bar at all. But I would, but I will also push back on something. I, I don't know that I'm like a, I don't know that I'm a Trump guy. I, what, I, what I would say is like I just think I actually understand what's going on with within the Republican Party. Oh, um, I'm glad you're saying this because this, this, this is people, this is an yeah. interesting conversation that we sort of had today. I don't want to steal your thunder. I'll, I'll let you do it. It, it. But it was when you said it, I just I was like, oh, I've never thought of it that way, and. It was really profound. So I'm kind of glad that I said that wrong and that you pushed back because it led me to something that I would have failed to remember to bring up in this conversation. Yeah, so I think a lot of people were focusing on the fact that like Nikki Haley won like 40% of the vote in South Carolina. And there are a lot of people who are seizing on this as saying like, well, that's 40% of the people who are saying like they don't want Donald Trump, right? That's 40% of the people who are saying they don't want Donald Trump. And and so, you know, that's that's possibly very, very bad news. Um for Donald Trump. And I immediately kind of didn't really, uh, like I, I just thought this was pure, like, uh, cope on the, as, as the kids say on the part of the, uh, on the the part of the, uh, the media where they were just like, sort of like, um, trying to make this into a story because the way that I kind of interpreted it is, is like, okay, she is a former popular governor of the state and she could only get 40% of the vote. But more importantly, if that's how we're going to like the narrative that the media is running with is that if they would just pick Haley, they would win the election. So if they just pick Haley, like they'll win the election. And my point is, is like, if you accept that premise, then what you're essentially saying is that, well, okay, well then 60% of the people would rather lose then elect Nikki Haley as their as their president of her own party, by the way, not just like, the you know, and and so that's the thing is like, I think the thing that separates so so many people get so caught up in their feelings about Donald Trump that they don't look at what's really going on. And I just think that if you look at what's going on, the Democratic Party is clearly in charge of what the Democrats do. Right. The party yes. apparatus is in charge of what the Democrats do. As proven by a, a, a large, a fairly large percentage of Democrats don't want Biden. They would like a more open process. Uh, they've in Michigan yesterday was 18% or something like that just voted for basically nobody, anyone else but Biden, which is a, a significant number. Yeah. And but the Democratic Party is clearly in charge. They've been in charge for a long time. I mean, if you go back to 2016, Bernie Sanders was doing well in the primaries, but they set up the rules so that Bernie Sanders couldn't win because they because they thought that Hillary was their better choice to to win. Yep. The party itself is picking the the candidates. The party itself is in charge. The party apparatus is running things. In the Republican Party, the, at a national level, the Republican Party is dead. Like it basically doesn't exist. It just has a lot of infrastructure that's still in place, and Trump is just kind of dr- occasionally dragging them across the finish line, right? That, that, that's what's really going on. Trump has just taken over a dead party, and um, and because the thing is, is that um, it's very, very clear 
that the problem here is, is that Republican voters do not like the Republican Party. Like they're not voting Republican because they think that the Republican Party is like doing a great job. They're voting for the Republican Party because they don't like the Democrats and they don't like what the Democrats are doing. And this is their only alternative. But Donald Trump gave them gave those people something um, that they wanted to vote for. Right. Because. There is there is this segment of the Republican electorate that looks at the Democratic Party, that looks at a significant chunk of the Republican Party and says, these people uh, do not share my values. These people do not enact the policies that I want to see enacted. They don't do what I want. And um, and I don't want any of them. I don't, I don't want any of them. I don't want any of these people. And then what happens is like Trump comes along and Trump starts pointing out that like, yeah, these people are terrible. Like you should hate them all. And, and, and also pointing out that like, Hey, they don't like you either. Right? Like they're not, they're not, you know, they're not fans of you either. So you might not like them. We'll get, well, let me tell you what, the reason they're not responsive to you is because they don't like you either. And so some, and so he came along and he was this person who basically said what they thought about these people. And so like, a lot of the actual policies and things like that, I don't think are, you know, that he was pushing, I don't think are as relevant as the fact that he was just coming out and saying, look, you don't like these people. You think that they don't like you. And I'm here to tell you, I know them and they don't like you. Right. But I will be your advocate. Yes. And so I think that that's, I think that's clear as day what is going on with Trump. And I think like, but, but that's the thing is like, when I explain this to people, people immediately are just like, oh, like, so you know, you're like a big Trump supporter or something like that. And it's like, no, like I'm looking at this objectively and I'm seeing how people respond to these kinds of things. And that's how people respond. No, like the Republican, like electorate, the people who are actually voting in Republican primaries do not want Nikki Haley. They do not want her. Right. The party does. Right. The party does because the party apparatus just wants to win elections. They just want to win elections. Yeah. The voters are like, listen, if we win elections, you guys don't actually do anything for us. Right. So if you don't do anything for us, we don't care if we win the election or not. Right. Like all you're doing is like like the these people see the choice between Joe Biden and Nikki Haley like this. If I elect Joe Biden, um, you know, he is going to leave the gas on in my house, light a match and walk away. So my house is just going to explode. Right. That That's how they see him. Right. Yeah. Nikki Haley is just going to let my house burn slowly, right? Like that's how they see it, right? Is like either way, you know, they're getting a terrible outcome. One, she just might not takes, throw accelerant yes, on it. Yeah, but it's one just burn. takes longer than the other. She's also right? not sending the fire department to put the fire out, right? And so their attitude is like, um, the, the attitude is that Nikki Haley is just, um, you know, she's just a, a slower she's just a slower moving Democrat, right? She's just going to take, she's just going to take you in the same direction and more slowly, right? Like that's how they, that's how they view it because these people are all part of this same sort of ruling class, right? They all have the same sort of ideology. They have the same sort of background. They all advocate the same sorts of policies. And so because of that, you know, people are fed up and people are like, no, I want you to actually represent me. And the other thing about this is, is it gets, it goes back to this thing that we always talk about is like, there are just, there's just explicit 
there's just explicit patronage that the Democratic Party does. Like they literally practice patronage in the most blatant way. Like they just like they continue to do student loan forgiveness. Why do they do student loan forgiveness? Well, because the people who benefit from this are primarily high educated professionals. And who do high educated professionals tend to vote for? That well, a majority of them tend to vote for Democrats. So you're giving these people, um, you're just giving these people money, right? Like you're just you're getting rid of their debt. Now, of course, the taxpayers are on the hook for all of this, right? So you're not. <laughs> but the but the point is, is like you're wiping away this debt. You're benefiting these potential voters of yours. In an, and and it's it's blatant, right? Like you're do you're doing this because it's patronage. You're doing this because it gives. Uh, support to you're giving financial support to your supporters right and they do this in the opposite way too they do this in the opposite way by punishing the people who don't vote for them like if you think about what's going on in the military when they told everybody hey you got to get the shot they were you know there were people who were like no i'm not getting i'm not getting it i'm not doing it and when they told them that um they were like okay well if you don't get it like we're just going to kick you out right yeah and think about this this is pure like uh, harming your enemy because what they're doing is is that this policy allows them, A, to identify people who are more likely like conservative or Republican or however you want to think about it, right? It, allow, it allows them to identify those people. Also, it allows them to identify those people who are likely to defy an order because they don't want to do – because they don't want to get it and they're telling you that they don't want to get it. And so who knows what other order they might decline. Right. Is someday if you uh, if you ask them to do something and they're taking the people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum, who are less likely to just follow orders and they're kicking them out. Who does that benefit? It benefits the Democratic Party. Right. Because what you're doing is, is you're you're creating uh, you're, you're rooting out people who might defy an order. You're rooting out people who disagree with you. And so all of this stuff is just. Uh, you know, benefiting our friends and harming our enemies. And they do this explicitly. And the Republican Party does nothing. Now, I'm not saying like the Republican Party needs to practice patronage, right? But what I'm saying is, is that the Republican Party is doing nothing for its voters. It does nothing for its voters. And at the end of the day, yes, politics is, you know, is, is partly about getting the policies that you want in place, but it's also about figuring out how to reward your supporters so that you can remain in power so that you can create those policies that you think are, are worthwhile. And it's just not, and, and it's just not happening. And I think that, you know, the, there's a segment of the voting public that has had enough and that's why they're, they're supporting Donald Trump. And, and I think that it's hilarious to watch the media talk about, well, Nikki Haley's getting 40% of the vote or, you know, she's getting, um, you know, and so like, this is a huge mistake because she would obviously win over Trump. Well, it's like, well, <laughs> I don't see how she's obviously going to win over Trump when, when she's he's, losing to Trump. When, when she's losing to him, thirty percent. Right? So there are more people who are voting for him than are voting for her, and somehow this means that he's uh, th- that like uh, she can win. And it's like, no, no, she's getting fewer votes than him. So you know, um, it, it's not it's not obvious that this would be a win, but it is quite obvious that the people who are voting in these primaries do not want her. They do not want her to be their nominee. They don't want her to run the party. They see her as just the same old. Republican that they're sick and tired of sending to Washington. A little breaking news as we did this involving Trump. Supreme Court, this is reading from the New York Times. Supreme Court on Wednesday agreed to decide whether former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 election. 
The justices scheduled arguments for the week of April 22nd and said proceedings in the trial court would remain frozen while they considered the matter. The court's brief order said the court will decide this question. Whether and if whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? The Supreme Court's response to Mr. Trump's bid for delay had taken on increasing urgency because its ultimate resolution would determine whether and how quickly Trump could go to trial. That, in turn, could affect his election prospects and, should he be reelected, his ability to scuttle the prosecution. In an emergency application asking the Supreme Court to intervene, Trump said a unanimous three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit had been wrong to rule that he may be criminally charged for his conduct as president. Total immunity for his official conduct, Mr. Trump's application said, is required by the separation of powers implicit in procedures for impeaching the president and needed to prevent partisan misuse of the criminal justice system. An absence of criminal immunity for official acts threatens the very ability of the president to function properly, the filing said. Any decision by the president on a politically controversial question would face the threat of indictment by the opposing party after a change in administrations. Uh, Mr. Trump added a practical concern. Conducting a month-long month criminal trial of President Trump at the height of election season will radically disrupt President Trump's ability to campaign against President Biden, which appears to be the whole point of the special counsel's persistent demands for expedition. The D.C. Circuit's order thus threatens immediate irreparable injury to the First Amendment interest of President Trump and tens of millions of American voters who are entitled to hear President Trump's campaign message as they decide how to cast their ballots in November. It's kind of the one other thing that's out there. This is this one goes to the Supreme Court. People pay attention to Supreme Court rulings. If the Supreme Court rules in Trump's favor, it's a monumental victory for him, I guess, in May when this ruling will come out. Yeah, I think the this is actually, I think, the most difficult case that's out there for him because this is really about well the the problem is is that it's tied up with so many other things right so so the idea is is like um it is in part about like whether he has immunity for what happens on January 6th but like your your judgment of what happened on January 6th like is going to affect like whether or not he has immunity, right? So in other words, like if you literally tried to, um, like if, if he would have like, uh, mounted a horse and led the military to the Capitol or something like that. And, um, and tried to, you know, essentially, uh, engage in some sort of coup. Um, yeah, I mean like the Supreme court is not going to rule that he has immunity to do, <laughs> to, do, to do something like that. Right. But, what happened on January 6th depends on who you talk to, right? Like some people just view this as, um, you know, as like a protest that got out of hand, you know, some people view this as an insurrection. Well, if you think it's an insurrection, then, um, you know, you're clearly going to think that like, well, an insurrection is, um, 
uh, you know, e- even if you had immunity, it wouldn't apply to insurrection, right? But the question is, is like, was there an insurrection at all? Like, is that really what happened here, right? Was there was there actually any attempt to, um, you know, to take control of the government or something like that, or was this a protest that got out of hand, or you know, or or you know, what what was it? And so I think this is the most difficult case because there there are just too many moving parts associated with the the sort of legal arguments that are being considered here. And so, you know, it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal because I, I genuinely don't really know how the Supreme Court is going to rule on this. Um, I think the fact that they're going to hear this in in April is a sign that they probably have a, a, an idea of how they're going to rule on it right now that's what i think i I think it's it's this is likely good news for trump the supreme court historically worries about precedent yeah trump's filing again whether you whatever you think of trump his filing makes a lot of sense if you set a precedent where once someone is out of power the new ruling power can prosecute him or her based on what he or she did in office as president. You are really getting into dangerous ground. You're getting into lock up your political enemies. Well, and this is the this is the main problem, right? Is that if this was the only thing going on, people's reaction would be much different. Right, but we just talked about, or if they would have done it quicker. Right, they they waited till the election cycle. I mean, there was not. There's no new information about January sixth in 2024 that wasn't available in, frankly, 2021. Certainly, 2022. The fact that they waited this long, I think, is revelatory of more of a political agenda than a true search for justice. And look, I I think. I think Trump has some liability on J6. There's there's some issues there. But the fact that it took this long, and again, the Supreme Court's going to look at this, one would hope, from a precedent standpoint, I would be surprised if this is not a 7-2, 8-1, maybe even unanimous ruling, where they say this is just not a good place for us to go. Well, but I think, but but see, that's where I think that it's difficult because it depends on what your interpretation of events on January sixth are. Because what this is, what this case is, is this case isn't really about does the president have immunity or not. What it's really going to end up being about is like um, how much immunity does the president have, right? Because one of the things because they're concerned with precedent, one of the things they might be concerned about is if they just come out and say like, yes, the president has immunity and like, um, you know, and in that case, the problem there is, is that that now empowers future presidents with potential power that they didn't have before. Right. So if you ever have a president who genuinely wants to lead a coup, you can't even like even if it's unsuccessful, like you might you you might not be able to prosecute him. Oh, yeah. Right. Good point. Yeah. And so when they're worried about precedent, it's going to depend a lot on how they interpret those events. And so when they talk about this, I imagine what it's going to be is like they're going to try to draw some line in the sand of like where your immunity ends. 
And so I think like, so, so an obvious place would be that like your immunity ends, you know, um, at the point at which like you try to take over the government or something like that. But then, but then their decision has to hinge on how they interpret those events. And so I think it's actually going to be a much, much closer decision because I think that like the liberal justices are, are, are going to say, no, 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 this was an insurrection. And so like, yes, there's a very high bar here, but this crosses that bar. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that the question is then how the more conservative justices are going to handle this, because if they treat January 6th as though this is just a sort of out of control kind of like mob of people who are just there to protest, but really had no objective of like, you know, overthrowing the government or overturning the election or whatever. They were just mad and, you know, running around and, uh, and, and, you know, invading the Capitol and things like that. If their interpretation is like that, then they're going to say, well, this, uh, like an actual insurrection, right. Would be beyond, you know, immunity, but we don't think this was an insurrection. But if they, but if they say, well, we think that this is an insurrection, they're undoubtedly going to say that like, well, that's, that doesn't, you know, you're not immune in that case, right? Because you're literally trying to effectively overthrow the government. And so you can't have immunity against that because that creates a dangerous precedent. So I actually think that it's going to be much closer. And I think it's going to depend a lot upon, you know, where they draw that line. It's fascinating stuff. It's, it's March right around the corner got conventions this summer. I think it might be the first presidential election in my memory where there's no debates. I can't imagine that the Democrats are going to let Biden debate. He declined apparently today when he had his physical at Walter Reed to do a mental acuity exam or whatnot. It was so funny. This, we're wrapping up, I promise. This morning, it was so interesting to see the scuttle. Oh, gosh, see, they're setting it up for he's going to have some sort of a health issue and he's going to have to step down. I went, no, nah, man, there's no sign of this. There's no sign at all from anyone in Biden land that Biden is prepared to do anything other than run for reelection. And there's no sign on the Republican side that there's even going to be a, even the slightest bit of um, – resistance in terms of someone being able to mount a campaign that gets enough delegates to take the thing, make it interesting. It's going to be Trump Biden and you're going to have these cases and Hunter Biden was on Capitol Hill today. I mean, it, we're, we're headed towards the big circus at a, at a time when there's a lot of other things going on in our country and people are People are concerned about their pocketbooks and inflation and interest rates and can they afford a house and all of those things. It's a it's a wild time. We've talked about it for a long time and it kind of feels like, well, here we go. Well, it's going to be a wild year and it's going to be a wild year because I do think there's an internal conflict in the Democratic Party about what to do about Joe Biden. Um, but I think like they're sort of between a rock and a hard place. We've talked about that many times. Um, so I won't belabor that point here. Um, but, you know, and then you talk about the Supreme Court case with Trump. Um, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who think that Nikki Haley is staying in the race so that she'll just have a sufficient number of delegates to argue that if something happens to Trump or he's ruled ineligible, that like she'll be able to just take the nomination or but something. But she really won't, you know, I mean, she won't, she'll have some, and I guess in a, in a scenario where Trump is dead or, or has pulled out of the race or is deemed ineligible because of his incarceration which i think is incredibly unlikely but 
she wouldn't have enough delegates to to win on the first. So once once they had the first vote and the delegates were released, it's a free for all. And I don't. Yeah, I don't think that. Like I, and, and, I think, and frankly, my my point was this: is I, I I think the Republicans in that scenario would be so angry at what happened to Trump that the only people that would have a shot would be Trump surrogates in a room full of Republicans. I don't think Nikki Haley is the anti-Trump candidate would be able to win in that environment. No, it'd be a really interesting thing because the party itself, as I just talked about, is incredibly weak. So like if this was the Democratic Party, like they would just have their they, they would they would just have like their one or two people that they think and then they would just kind of hash out the, a political deal. With the Republicans, I think it would be absolute chaos because I think that they would have no idea what to do. I think Haley would try to claim that she's the rightful uh, nominee, but you know there are going to be other people who make that claim as well, and and um and who knows? Like you know, uh, other people who ran for president already might throw their hat in the ring, right? DeSantis might just say, "Well, hey, sure. if it's going to go to the delegates, like you know, sure, um, you know, I can I can win, right?" And because at that point, then you are trying to choose the person who can. Uh, who can win because the voters are no longer involved right now. It's the party that's really going to get to decide. And so, and on the Democrat side, they could get to a point this summer where they look at the president and say, the numbers are not in your favor. You're in, you're in trouble politically. Your popularity is at an all time low. Your running mate, her popularity is even lower than yours. We can't run this risk. You're resigning. You you are you are stepping off and 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 then you could have this power struggle where the party is trying to dictate to the president of the United States that he will not run for re-election. I, I I don't I don't think in that scenario the party would win. No, things are starting to get really crazy, and things I think are going to be wild this year. I think it's going to be just I, you know I, I I it's it's hard to predict even what's going to happen, but I think that this is also but just the fact that it's so hard to predict what's going to happen, just the fact that it seems like it's going to be so wild, like this is just a terrible place for the country to be in, and that um and it's a testament to the fact that like to some extent like these these Trump voters are right, like the ruling class doesn't seem to care uh, uh, about the average American because if they cared about the average American, like we wouldn't be having these conversations, we wouldn't be talking about all of this stuff, right? Yeah. Like they would be offering some kind of better alternative and they're not right. And so, um, you know, we're, we're just kind of stuck with this, uh, weird, wild, uh, world that we're in and it's incredibly, it's incredibly depressing. It is that, uh, we'll be back in, uh, I was just thinking as you were finishing up in two weeks, I'll probably be in Nashville for SEC tournaments. Maybe we'll do it earlier that week or we'll, we'll figure it out, but we'll be back with another edition. And when we do, it'll be March of uh, the Josh Hendrickson show as we get closer and closer. Super Tuesday will be behind us. There'll be a lot. We'll be a lot further along in a number of these things. So uh, until then, enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks, Josh, for uh, your time. As always, uh, always fun to visit with you. Yeah, thanks. It was a blast. We'll be back, uh, in, like I said, a few weeks. Until then, take care. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a movement watch is even more than that. 
Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.